I just took it out of there nice and easy, didn't crank up the throttle until I was out past the airport, and then ran full tilt until all I could see was waves and rain and rain, a nor'easter bearing down from Greenland, a big, blue, nasty-looking son of a bitch. We had an exposure suit in there, so I pulled it on, then crammed myself back into my Levi's so I wouldn't be so fucking orange. I pointed her north, into the storm clouds, into the waves. Nothing could find me in that. Not cigarettes, not CG cutters, neither helicopters nor satellites. Or so I thought, until the helicopter gunship came up on my stern. <laughs> I feel like an a-hole guest a lot of the times when I try to work from the road. Yeah, no, I hear you. I was just uh, I was just out in Bend for a few days, and um, it, it was like, a, like I definitely have many places I could stay in Bend, and one of them I did the right thing and got way ahead of it and asked this friend like back in August because I always feel I always feel like a shit like asking right on the the verge of the trip because then it's just so clear to the person that you're staying with that like like yeah sure I'd like to see you but this is really more about like having a place to stay. Um, and so I did the right thing and got really far ahead of it this time and talked to my friend Matt and was like, Hey, I'm coming out to bend for the Wilco show in September. Mm. Could I crash with you? And he was like, yeah, of course. And then last week he gets COVID and I'm suddenly like sort of thrust back into the right. situation that I was trying to avoid, which is like, yes, I would like to stay with you. But this is kind of transactional and I'll still be working and the thing that I'm coming to Bend for doesn't include you. Yeah, no, it's a little bit tough. Well, I'll be visiting you and and and, and, and I feel like we've we've already I think both of us are going to be busy working on other things, but we've carved out some time yeah. to visit with one another, too. But you and I are similar in that regard, too. I, can, I feel like we totally. can definitely be like, hey, how's it going? You know, and then eight hours later yeah. be like, hey, how's it going? You know, <laughs> yeah, I had exactly. uh, I had a. Um, a visitor in February, a uh, shout out to Stephen from Overcoat Media uh, from the UK who was working on an audio documentary. And I had mentioned on Facebook at one point, you know, like, hey, I have a guest room. You know, I like visitors. And I hadn't, he, he, you know, we had always gotten along, but we didn't know each other that well. We met at a conference once and we got along and then we sort of stayed in touch. And um, so he came out and worked on his audio documentary for, I don't know, four or five days and stayed with me and, you know, stayed in my guest room. And we would have kind of coffee or tea in the morning. And I think I cooked dinner one night, you know, like steak frites or something like that. And he was he was well into that. And then, you know, he would just go off and do his thing. And I kind of lived my life. And and uh, I think the last night we either went out for a beer or we had cocktails or something like that. So we basically like hung out twice the entire time. He was here for like five days and the rest of the time we both just worked. But every now and again, we would take like a little coffee break and sort of chat about what we were working on and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was great. That's awesome. Yeah. The working, the, the working roommate. It's, it's a brilliant thing. Yeah. Yeah. And even like the working sort of couch surfer, except for you know, I have an actual guest room. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, get on down to business. Let's, sure. uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this book. I, I know we have uh, a place to go with, uh, with the, the reading, but I do have a, uh, I do have a mass hole question that I wanted to get oh, okay. in, uh, here at the front. 
Um, did and but it, it sort of hinges on: Did you listen to this book, or did you actually read this one? I, I listened and then went back and read certain passages. And are you listening to the audible, um, the audible version of it? Yeah. Okay. There is a town that features prominently in the second half of this book. Oh, I think and I know what it is. What what, what is it? Well, hey, Lynn, let me think. There's a town that features prominently in the second half of this book. Like over and over and over again. And about after the hundredth time that it had been mispronounced, I was oh. like, I, I, I was like, I, I know there's nothing that I can do here and it's not this reader's problem. Um, but boy, because I grew up no, two towns over it's from this not, town. Is it one of the 128 towns, like suburbs? Okay, yes. so let me think. Yes. Uh, ah, I don't remember. Is it Natick by any chance? That's the correct what it, pronunciation. And how is it pronounced in the book? <laughs> it, Natic, after the, it keeps saying Natick. Natick. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, ah, over and over again. I took the, and, and I mean, like, one nice thing is his depiction of Natick is yeah. so absolutely spot on. Um, Natick and Framingham are like the last two towns that were like swallowed yeah. by Route 9. Um, like Route 9 was sort of like burrowing out from Boston in the east and like burrowing out from Worcester on the west. And basically Shrewsbury, Westboro, where I grew up, Framingham and Natick were the last four to get kind of like pretty much just turned into yeah. bedroom communities by route nine, um, yeah. which is a shitty road. Like route nine is, um, it's not an elevated highway. It's a divided highway. With like a thousand traffic on each side and about yeah. a billion Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> like, like, I mean, so like the place where that joke about two identical franchises yeah. on opposite sides of a highway just staring at each other. Well, you don't like, want to I do like a that U-turn. was born basically in my hometown. I know it wasn't. We don't do fucking U-turns. <laughs> we don't do fucking U-turns. Uh, though, however, the, uh, the 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 reader's command of the Boston accent yeah. for the lobsterman, I thought was I thought was great. Um, his moment when he says Gallagher says sheesh and everybody on the boat goes, sheesh. What do you want to go there for? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm home. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we got us. A, hey, look. We got ST, us a long hair environmental. environmental. Yeah. We're not a bunch of dumb mix, ST. When he suggests, no. when he reminds them not to eat the, like, pre-hydrocarbon uh, uh, <laughs> charcoal. Right. Yeah, exactly. Don't get the one with the, uh, the self-lighting charcoal. Yeah, we're not a bunch of dumb mix, SD. <laughs> no, we stopped eating yeah. those lobsters. Like, you um, know, you kind of got us turned into environmentals ourselves. We we did a little experiment. Uh, I was um, I I do use my phone and like voice memos to kind of as I'm listening do some um, yeah. chapter summary. And knew that it was really getting into my head when I when I was speaking and said. Um, Possible contamination yeah. site is in Dorchester Bay. And I was like, ah! <laughs> it just it's like it's all coming back. Uh, the accent that I grew up around is just uh, worming its way back in. Yeah, they're from all over the harbor, <laughs> SD. Mostly Dorchester Bay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that 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 reader I thought did a um a real marvelous job. The second half escalates in a way that at first I found really masterful, if a bit shocking. And then I find 
<laughs> shocking and and weird yeah, exactly. and maybe not masterful certainly talented i think you use the phrase wild talent and <laughs> and and i think as a compliment when we were talking about snow crash this would be maybe using it as less of a compliment which is just where you just see somebody sort of like like with a fire hose of talent just like spraying it all over a city block regardless of where the actual fire might be so um ST is kind of... Oh, well, we haven't done a plot recap yet. We should probably do that first, shouldn't we? We should do a plot recap. I did, uh, as you were, as I did have a joke that as you were um, talking about sort of wild talent spraying all over the place, uh, there is a throwaway moment where ST um, says, like my first orgasm. And I kind of (laughs) wanted to say, or like your first book, Mr. Stevenson. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I don't remember exactly what the metaphor was for, but... um, yeah, well, um, how sh- do you want to start, or do you want me to start? Yeah, no, uh, um, yeah, I can, uh, I can start. Um, so, chapter, so we're doing chapter twenty through thirty six today. Yeah, dear, yeah. dear uh, listeners, um, we the, the whole second half of Neil Stevenson's nineteen eighty eight eco thriller Zodiac, um, and uh, we we begin with a series of chapters. Uh, that really is about launching us into this pretty over-the-top plot of the second half of the book. Um, chapter 20 is is mostly a plot container um, for us to get Esmeralda's newspaper clipping about Pleshy in 1956, where we learn that in 1956, uh, Pleshy was part of burying some old Transformers uh, in Boston Harbor, basically. Uh, the same transformers that get destroyed by a loose barge during a hurricane. Um, we also learn about uh, well, we we have this this meeting at Biotronic with our villain Laughlin, um, where we discover that the reason that they have kind of been able to stay ahead of ST up to this point is that they have come up with a, a bacterial strain that will eat. Um, PCBs. Uh, I just realized that my little, my, um, my voice memo voice converter has done the same exact thing that the poison boys and fans did and mm. turned PCB into PCP. Uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, allegedly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so we have this, uh, this meeting between ST and our big, our, our, our pretty big bad Laughlin um, and, um, Dolmacher, who is kind of our sucker, um, that the cards that they are holding, they want to kind of co-opt ST to get him on their side, uh, because they have basically, they think that they have come up with a way to get rid of toxic pollution. Um, he sees through it and is like, you guys have no idea what you've created and it could go horribly, horribly wrong. Um, which leads us into chapter 21, uh, which is, um, I'm going to kick it back over to you. I don't remember the exact chapter number, and, it, and I am not taking notes, but mm. the next thing I remember happening is is ST has basically come up, and I would say with like a level <clears throat> of intuition of the sort you kind of associate with Sherlock Holmes, uh, suddenly has this entire story 
figured out of exactly what Biotronic and uh, I forget the Balco chemicals have done wrong here in dumping, you know, and suddenly he's put together all of these threads of, you know, sensing the pollution and then the pollution going away and the lobstermen seeming to be poisoned. So he goes out on the harbor on his Zodiac looking for more evidence and he gets another weird clue, which is that now all the lobstermen are sick which doesn't really make a lot of sense because they say they're not eating the poison lobster anymore. And in fact, they stopped eating lobster altogether. Uh, uh, actually, and no, so... that's, not, that's not totally correct. Um, the guy who was sick has stopped eating lobster altogether. The other lobstermen that's are right. still eating lobsters, but they're not eating the oily or smelly ones. They're eating the clean ones, right. which become significant a little, way, little while. I had to, I had to that's right. read that whole section twice. So I understand there, the, I understand your misunderstanding, and I think it is a problem with the book. Well, I I think I picked that up when I read it. I bet I couldn't remember it super well. And in part of what's going on here is that the plot is getting very very complex, particularly when you when the chemistry part of the plot is very very complex. And I think that Stevenson at this point in his career is not really good at. Uh, understanding what the reader is going to follow super well. And so sometimes he'll drop little details in there that he really expects you to remember and you're very unlikely to uh, remember. And I don't know, maybe that's maybe he sees that as sort of part of the challenge of reading his books too, the way a, a detective novelist might. But so there's this, this whole thing with the lobster fisherman that it originally confuses ST a little bit. And later he starts coming up with an hypothesis about what might be going on. But then I think while he's trying to gather more evidence about this, and I don't remember if there's an interluding, you have what I consider to be a really wonderful action sequence where he's diving for information and then just in a really wonderful way becomes eerily aware. It's a foggy day and he becomes eerily aware that there's another propeller, which kind of creeps him out because he didn't see any boats, which means if there's another boat out there, it's running without its running lights on, which means it's trying to be sneaky, which means it might be following him. He, so he discovers that sure enough, it's the same cigarette boat that that he associates with Balco and uh, potentially the thugs who he was chasing around in Buffalo, Niagara. And that institutes a whole sequence of events that is just a really thrilling, scary uh, chase scene. Shades of Tom Ripley falling off the rowboat. A very, uh, very uh, clear shade. <laughs> the same thing. Yes. Yes, even the to the point of the boat going around in circles and him having and like swallowing yeah. water. I mean, it's almost like he he must have you he probably read that scene at some point, whether he was thinking about it or whether it just entered his subconsciousness when he was reaching. Yeah. And you know, I'll read a passage of this later. But even when he regains the boat, then the adventure is just beginning. All of this ends in a boat chase across the harbor where he eventually tricks uh, the two thugs who do seem like they're actively trying to kill him by running him over in their speedboat and calling it an accident. Uh, he tricks them into going a place where they their boat really shouldn't go and they blow up and die um, horribly in flames. And then he sort of drags himself to shore and flags down an environmentalist who recognizes him, who helps him get kind of cleaned up. Um, at this point, the, the the stakes have changed, right? Because this is the first moment that 
it's life and death. Up to this point, it does sort of have this kind of Encyclopedia Brown type feel or, or Hardy Boys where like the worst thing that's going to happen is you're sneaking around and someone's going to call security and you might get <laughs> yeah, arrested, totally. you know, or maybe they'll call dad and dad will be like, you leave that old factory alone, you know, that that. But but now we're in a whole nother novel because it's life and death and they are trying to kill ST and he's freaked out by that. And so he warns his roommate and warns the people at the house to be on the lookout. Um, but then he and Bart go on a sort of uh, adventure through uh, various communities in Boston with a little bit of racism thrown in. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, to try to kind of locate the source of some pollution because Esty has an hypothesis about what's going on and he's trying to determine whether he can find some toxic dumping. And I'll throw it over to you at that point if you want to elucidate more. I don't expect our recap followers to fully follow the chemical plot uh, that's going yeah, on I here. I will say that um, the chemical plot hinges on the idea that most chemical uh, reactions in in the world of physics and chemistry can go in both directions. So this company right. Biotronics has created a PCB eating bug that then poops out salt water. They have also been like, oh my God, if we can make the thing that we sell out of salt water, then why don't we just run this in the other direction? Um, and yeah. as is the case with almost every book or movie like this, uh, this is the dwarves digging too deep in Moria. Um, this is, uh, this is, this is greed that eventually gets you killed. Uh, this is, yeah. And we, we discover this a little bit later, sort of at Dolmacher's house after, True. after some other but we stuff. We get the happened, first, but. we get us the second clue here, which is as they get closer to the purported source of the pollution, the signal gets weaker, which is the second really yeah. confusing thing for ST after the PCBs disappearing from the Harbor after his first sample but yeah, they go sewer diving all night long. Um, they are successful enough of getting samples and pinning down where they think it's coming from. Biotronic does have a lab that they discover pretty much at the end point of where, where they're finding the poison. Um, they return... And then there is the first of many wildly implausible moments... He and Bart are sitting there listening to their um, voicemail machine. Um, I can't even remember what it's called now. Answering <laughs> machine. The answering machine. I was like, my brain can't come up with that noun anymore. Um, and somebody has voice left a message. Machine. <laughs> voice voicemail machine. Voice. This this is your voicemail machine, right? That would have been a perfectly good name for it. It's just that we didn't really have voicemail until that had became a, di a digital service offered by the phone company. Exactly. So uh, they discover from their answering machine that someone has planted a bomb in their basement. Um, they escape the bomb by diving out the front window as the house explodes um, in sort of a not unlike Lethal Weapon 3 moment um, where... Danny Glover is on the is Danny Glover or Mel Gibson on the toilet that's bombed. I think it was Danny Glover. Right. Um, but that's how I imagined yeah. uh, ST's house kind of going up in flames was that house explosion. Um, he 
I also imagined it a little bit like the scene in Pushing Tin where they run out and dive for cover and nothing happens <laughs> for 10 seconds and then it, and then they're like what's going and then it explodes <laughs> cuz he does say 10 seconds later um, bring it, which up is this, you know like, that's horrifying like like coincidence plausibility thing which I think we're probably going to talk about um but yeah. uh he knocks out his roommate and then um, basically figures out in a flash that he is now like a wanted terrorist, goes and gets the Zodiac. And after a um, very strange scene with a like Apache or Blackhawk, uh, an Apache attack helicopter, I think. I, I think a, I think a yeah, Cobra, Cobra heli- attack yeah. helicopter because he describes very it as having slender. a very narrow fuselage. Um, yeah. He does, in fact, escape to Maine uh, and well sort of Maine, kind of. Um, Neil Stevenson's Maine is kind of like his his Oregon in Snow Crash. Um, eventually yeah. makes it to New Hampshire, where he is brought back to life uh, by, uh, by his friend Jim. Um, then we meet Hank Boone, the, the actual eco-terrorist, and then learn his actual story, that he's not really an eco-terrorist. Um, he is used as kind of a boogeyman, for rich whalers to sink their ships and collect the insurance money. Um, and um, that is where we uh, begin learning as th- there's sort of this resuscitation, rejuvenation, convalescence period, um, kind of like the terrible convalescence period in Casino Royale, which is altogether too long and has too many bathrobes. So, uh, yeah, we, we sort of we kind of get the gang for, you know, if you had described heist one and heist two from the first half of the book, I would call this section like getting the team together uh, because we get Hank yeah. Boone and uh, Jim the Indian um, and uh, they all go off. They, they, they begin putting everything together. Uh, which means that they really um, have discovered that Dolmacher is sick. Um, he has eaten the bug that goes the other direction, or he's been poisoned by it. And so the bacteria in his gut is presently turning the salt in his diet into PCBs and other toxic substances. Um, a whole bunch of covalent chlorine, which is going to poison him and probably kill him. For revenge... He sets off to New Hampshire to perhaps assassinate Alvin Pleshy, who is the head of or is part of this Balco Biotronics um, toxic issue and a former U.S. cabinet member. But he's probably headed off to assassinate Pleshy. And I will send it back over to you. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I remember how you had sort of a remembered the uh the vacation in nova scotia scotia is happening at the end of the book um you said last time and i remember the sort of stalking around the woods looking for dolmacher as like the climatic scene of this book um which it's it's not but it could be it's the thing it it could it could have been which might be why i remember it that way there's there's a real sense of like the hero dying and being reborn in the White Mountains, you know. He's he's really unwell 
And, you know, when he's fully recovered, we're understood that he's lost 20 pounds. He was a little plump before by his own admission. Um, but now he's a lean and mean ST and they dye his hair and shave him. So he looks different. Um, and yes, he's kind of put together. He's now he's now like this new team. I mean, this is the elite of the elite, like Jim Grandfather, Boone and ST. Uh, there's there's kind of like in the same way the stakes escalated that now this is a life and death book where you can get killed. It's also this is like a leaner and meaner and more angry and more mature ST. I think we're meant to understand who is who spent his 40 days and 40 nights in the White Mountains, you know, and is now he, he's girded for war. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, they they go to try to foil Dolmacher. Um, not so much because they don't want Plushy to get assassinated. Plushy, by the way, is running for president. And not because they like Plushy or want him to not get killed, but because Dolmacher understands the science of this bug that's being dumped into the harbor, this sort of genetically engineered uh, microorganism. So they they figure they need him to uh to combat it um and so they don't want to get him they don't want him to get in a shootout with the cops because he tries to assassinate and so there's a certain amount of woodcraft uh really amusing interaction with some survival game players including uh, a guy who wakes up at 4 a.m and uh, has always has his coffee prepped the night before, which is like the ultimate in preparedness in sort of ST's telling. No, I, I, I'll um, do that. And I was like, come on, what, what the fuck? Like that's, that's I do a, that. That's a, I do that's, that too. That's but you know, maybe, limit. maybe you and I are natural leaders. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, um, so they basically, they track down, uh, Dole Malker at the last moment and they've kind of split up and uh, uh, Jim Grandfather, the native guy, uh, incapacitates him with uh, fishing arrows, which is a fun and very uh, Stevenson-like sort of plot device of sort of like woodcraft and live action. And um, Boone, uh, who's in disguise as a regular environmentalist as opposed to an eco-terrorist, gets in kind of a shouting match with uh, Pleshy and at the last minute throws himself on top of Pleshy and knocks him down um, in order to, to get him out of the way of uh, the assassin bullet, which turns out to be paintball. Uh, so it turns out that Dolmacher was not trying to assassinate Pleshy all along, but merely embarrass him. Um, although Dolmacher is also understood to be kind of off his rocker at this point. And so then, um, basically, at this point, ST... And uh, Boone, still in disguise, are now considered kind of heroes, more or less. And they go back to Boston by way of a free helicopter ride. And they consult with this guy named, um, what's Kel his name? Uh, Kelvin. Kelvin. Or yeah. Kelvin, yeah, he, right? I he knew he was one of the great, has, like, like a science name insert. And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. He, I knew he was one of the, like, you know... Royal Society <laughs> fellows. Um, and this guy feels like he has a solution um, to the bug that Balco has put in the harbor. But the other thing is that ST and Boone really want to catch them at um, what they're up to. And they figure the way to do this is to steal this freighter, which Balco has been using um, 
to both, I both contaminate the harbor, but also they have a kind of, the freighter has a lot of this toxic material on it, and they have a way of kind of under the waterline dumping it throughout the harbor. So ST and Boone want to capture that uh, freighter so they can prove that Balco, um, who has connections with Pleshy, are, you know, uh, have been contaminating the harbor illegally. Um, but... Uh, our old friend, Wayne, um, who is destroyer of G vehicles, destroyer of vans um, and oh, other yeah, things, yeah. Um, is one of the sort of plot irritants that is going to really accelerate this book um, into its final its final shenanigans. And Smirnoff. Right. Yes, Smirnoff, so Wayne, Wayne, who we meet in the very first chapter, exactly. makes an so appearance. Wayne has been hanging out with Smirnoff, the, uh, the like... We're, we're led to believe like pretty shitty eco-terrorist, like lots of um, yeah. more sizzle than steak. But in this case, um, has a real plan to blow up Alvin Plushy's, uh, well, to, the, the Balco Explorer, to, to blow up this large boat that has all of this toxic chemicals in it, which is really going to, which is a disaster. Then all of that stuff is going to get out into the harbor and there's no way there won't be any way of pinning it on um, Plushy and Laughlin and um, Basco. I keep calling it Balco, which is funny because that is another um, that is a real right. world. Uh, uh, I may have referred to it as Balco, um, Basco and uh, Biotronics. Um, but before we get to all that, there is like just this insane series of scenes out in. Uh, back on Spectacle Island, uh, where the Poison Boysen um, after party is taking place in this like heaven and hell themed party um, on this crashed barge uh, that if you get down into the bowels of it, you will find the Poison Boysen satanic rituals. Um, oh, God, I forgot oh. about this. This was like this weird subplot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole subplot where they're like they get into some fights where there are grenade booby traps. Uh, Bart shoots to death. I think three of these like satanic people who who just kind of attack um, St. and Boone, and you don't and they have knives. You're not quite sure if it is going to be lethal, but it gets lethal really quickly as Bart basically just kills them. And we don't know if they're attacking because they're just like Satanists doing their ritual or that they are sort of pressed by Balco and Laughlin to kind of defend the evidence. They kind of feel like video game sub bosses to me, you know, in a way. It's like the boss left them there to defend the evidence uh, because there was some toxic waste yeah. dumped there in the transformer. And we, we get the sense that Laughlin is the one who has done the booby trapping of leaving these grenades behind um, to really kind of keep people at bay. Um, I think this is all, I think this is all a setup to allow ST to rescue Debbie from Laughlin, who's got her in a boat after kind of apprehending her, um, is, is sort of like um, it's like a she's she sort of plays the role of a not great YT in this moment because like because ST yeah. actually goes and saves her, whereas in Snow Crash, YT more than fends for herself. Um, 
She's like YT without the Nancy Drew Exactly. Uh, Debbie does have a very brave moment where she throws herself into the harbor wearing handcuffs, which uh, you're sort of like, oh, God, that's uh, that is a bold thing to do. And and she was also behaving extremely heroically and uh, competently before she was captured. Too, uh, documenting some dumping of pollution and that you know she was having her own adventure and 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 performing quite well. You know we're we meant to understand that she's she's ST good at what she does. and Boone uh, head out to the uh, the Basco Explorer and Bart and St in this very charming way just kind of invite themselves onto the ship and the like <laughs> the like nineteen year old merchant marines are like yeah come on up. I found that completely uh, yeah, plausible. That, too, that was right? like one of the and more it, plausible moments where these <laughs> bored 19 year old kids are like, oh, my God, you have beer like you've been talking to girls. Yes. Come up. Like, tell us about it. And it's played for dramatic irony, too, because while this is happening, they're supposed to be creating a diversion for Boone in like a frogman suit to sneak onto the boat. But like they actually the diversion proves more effective yeah. than the commando tactics. Um, I'm going to try to fast forward here a little bit. Um, they, the Basco yeah. Explorer um, does, they do, they do get to the Basco Explorer. Um, ST dives down below to start looking for the mines that Smirnoff and Wayne, um, the, the names are like jokes, um, have affixed to the bottom of the hull, finds them, but also discovers that there are two divers down here who one of whom gets killed very quickly. Um, the other is our friend Tom Akers, who is riddled with cancer and also hatred for Alvin Pleshy, who is thrown in with Smirnoff, we think, as part of this plot to bomb the Basco Explorer. I had to read that section like three times to understand what the hell yep. was going on. Um, I think I figured it out, but... <laughs> uh, why don't you wrap it up for us? All right, I won't go into the details, but like basically it becomes an adventure story at this point. You know, ST disables the bomb. Uh, meanwhile, the fishermen uh, have convinced their brother, the other Gallaghers, who have some implication in creating Spectacle Island in the first place to sort of atone for uh, some evil deeds done generations ago and drive their big-ass megaton called the Extra Stout uh, into this channel or harbor and basically help G and ST tow the freighter away. All this is happening where the security guards from uh, Basco are having a shootout um, and they're shooting at ST and Boone who are on the ship trying to secure the tow line. They both take some hits, but they bo- they're both more or less okay, although we learn that Boone <laughs> suffers a sucking chest wound, uh, but manages to uh, avoid passing out by using his wetsuit as a uh, and seal. His, and his forearm. Uh, <laughs> he like lies his on forearm. his forearm and you're like okay okay yeah boone boone is tactically rather badass too um and um yeah and some other there's kind of a there's kind of um oh and st uses um these kind of like very effective stink bombs uh uh and as part of this heist too but basically they managed to steal the yacht um gosh i'm trying to even remember what happens to every, or they don't, sorry, it's not the yacht, the freighter. They steal the freighter, they go out in the middle of the harbor, and they get their media moment. I'm trying to remember if there's anything else notable that happens in the midst of all this. 
Like what happens to Laughlin? I'm trying to remember. I, no, I, I, I remember there there is like a final showdown with um, Laughlin, but and he's got his gun. But you're right. Like it it doesn't right. stick out to me what he has his gun and and he they they're they're on the gangplank. Yeah. And but my best reluction is that basically like. Oh, does Boone intercede and like just like crack him in the back of the head with a pipe or something like that? Yep. Yeah. And then ST convinces his goons to drag basically is like, get the hell out of here and take him yeah. with you because we don't they don't want to be doing yeah. kidnapping. So I I feel like he he sort of leaves the scene kind of half knocked out, having been defeated. He's lost his gun. Um and uh they have his briefcase too, which has some evidence um, in it. Uh, Boone shoots him in the ear with a uh with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> Um, rendering oh, okay. rendering yeah. him incapacitated, uh, writhing, the word is. Um, and uh, yeah, there is a yeah. fun sentence. Several barfing blue-collar gnomes came up from below, stumbled over the writhing right. Laughlin and headed towards me, uh, which is to say they tried to get the fuck out of here. Um, but yes, they... And, and and ST is like take this yep, guy with that, yep. uh because we don't want we don't want to be we don't want to He doesn't be end up dead, him. but he does end up incapacitated enough um, and uh, just in time for the extra stout to to tow away the Basco Explorer, um, which is the the evidence they need to close the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, reader, that we <laughs> the the plot is extremely complex. Um, and and although it is a rollicking adventure story, there are a lot of details that you have to track. Yeah. Um, and it, the the fact that it is a a lively plot that is animated by really com fairly complex chemical science is in and of itself impressive. Um, anyway, I thought maybe I would just read some of that that moment where for me the book becomes a different mm -hmm. book, but in a good way where we have that escalation. Um, if that's yeah, all right. Let's do it. I love it. So he's diving. It's a foggy day. It's this wonderfully written scene, I think, where he is underwater and he hears the sound of a boat engine and he thinks, that's funny. I didn't see any boats. I don't see any running lights. Someone's trying to be stealthy. Maybe it's someone trying to, you know, sneak up on me. And he swims and discovers the cigarette boat, uh, which he had encountered earlier. So then he is like, oh, these guys are probably here to do me wrong. So he tries to sneak back into his Zodiac and he kind of fails. They hear him kind of fish belly flop into the zodiac and uh so they fire it up and uh they basically come at him and they start they pull out a gun like these are the two guys and he's in the zodiac but he hasn't been able to get the engine to start yet i remembered having tried to pistol shoot at jim grandfather's noticing how hard it actually was after having watched tv and movies my whole life to actually hit something with a handgun these guys were on a small boat, and so was I. I didn't figure they were going to nail me with one shot, which didn't prevent me from being scared shitless. When I saw the gun, I fell back on my ass, tipping the whole zode up. The cigarette overshot me and had to turn around for another pass. That gave me time to notice a little surprise they'd left behind. A pair of small darts stuck into the side of my Zodiac, and they were sputtering at me, throwing off a transparent bluish light. I'd heard about this from Dolmacher. It was a taser. If I hadn't fallen back, those darts would be stuck in my skin and that electrical charge would be running through my nervous system and I'd be unconscious or wishing I was long enough for them to rev up and run me over in their cigarette at about 80 miles an hour. Sorry, officer. It was foggy. The wake of the cigarette was throwing the zone around like a teeter totter. 
Something heavy smashed into my foot. It was our big nautical strobe light. So when the cigarette cruised by me for the second attempt, I turned the strobe on, held it over my head like a basketball, and made a three-point jump shot right into their cockpit. Nice second effort, boys, I hollered. The light had half-blinded me, too, but I didn't need perfect vision to start the motor. They needed it to take a shot at me. Time for another try at the motor. This time I did it right, set the throttle on start and choked it. Three more hauls on the ripcord and it started. Then it died. I put the choke back in and hauled it once more, getting a good start. I had to lean way over to shift it into forward gear, and that's how I got tossed out of the boat. What? <clears throat> and it continues for like another five pages at a similar level of sort of tension and drama. And it's, it's so... Um, Every time you think ST is going to kind of gain an advantage and escape, he gains a slight advantage and then it's taken away from him over and over and over again. And I read this seven years ago. I knew who wins. I know who the protagonist is. I more or less remembered what happened. And I still was incredibly tense when I read this passage. Uh, I think it's masterful. Yeah. And it it is like... Even at the time, though, I was a little bit uncomfortable by the level of escalation because there was nothing about this book to me that said this was life and death up to this point. But I kind of found myself going with it, I think, just because it was so well written. And it's like, all right, well, that was also the escalation for ST, too. You know, he didn't know it was life or life or death. Up yeah, to that very point. similar reaction. Um, what, what really was amazing for me from a craft perspective is... The number of times that he employs a relatively similar tactic of basically like red herring off in one direction and then whipping the Zodiac around real fast and letting them overshoot him. And it never feels trite or overused. It feels like the thing that you would do when you kind of have limited resources and one or two tricks yeah. that you could pull and the stakes are very high. And I think the reason right. this section succeeds in ways that maybe the rest of the book might not is that it sits in a real nice Venn diagram of, okay, the plot has to escalate. Like we, we really do need to, as you said, depart Encyclopedia Brown territory um, and, and, and nudge things up a little bit. Um, and this was, this was probably the right level. Like, and we even yeah. like the fact that he even kills these two and it makes the section in Buffalo a little bit better because we sort of learn that that uh, that Kleinho Kleinhofer and Dietrich um, even gives them German names um, that yeah. they really are. They really are like bad dudes um, and yeah. that it's OK that they end up sort of blowing up in like an action movie 80s fireball. Um, yeah. Although you could imagine a version of this book where they just like end up Biff style, like under a garbage skip with a bunch of like rotting fruit yeah. on them. And that was like their chief comeuppance. Like, and it almost sort of the first half of the book, that's what would have happened right. to them at the end of one of these um, moments. And, you then, know? And, and I think, and we'll talk about this later. Um, I think we're sort of headed that direction is that like on the slider of like escalating the plot, like this is one of those cases where you get the volume slider wrong because you just keep turning it up. <laughs> and yeah. like and for you know it's like the it's like the old cliche that a clock is correct twice a day. There's this moment as he's escalating the plot in this chapter 
where you're like, yes, yes, stay here. This is right. This is the right scope of the book. And Neil Stevenson is like, nah. <laughs> Neil Stevenson's like, this yeah, plot goes exactly. <laughs> and and yeah, the yeah. like yeah, the the echo of the Ripley moment with the book was I was just like, you are kidding me. It's the exact same structure. Yeah. Um, it made me feel very lucky that we're kind of casting a really wide net with our books. Um, and yeah. might bump into other strange echoes uh, as we read, you know, more widely. Um, because yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that was super fun. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was great. I really, I really did, I really did enjoy this section quite a bit, especially the move from quiet action to loud action, which I think he does really well. Yeah, this section of him like yeah. swimming around underneath the cigarette boat. And like, cause you know, you and I have both spent time in water. Like you can hear a propeller right. from a long way yeah. away underwater. It's amazing. Well, and you know, when you're swimming around and you're by yourself, I mean, just this, the isolation and the vulnerability he's experiencing in that moment too, you know, is very relatable. You know, when you're coming up and you're like, these people are watching me and I'm all out here by myself and no one can see me. You know, there's a real like in the Boston Harbor when it's foggy, no one can hear you scream kind of vibe. To that. <laughs> yeah. No one can hear you well, scream, um, bud. <laughs> out no there. one can hear you scream in the not harbor. Out in the harbor. <laughs> not when it's foggy. Yeah, not on a foggy yeah. day. Oh, they'll hear the not screaming, way. but they'll have no fucking idea where it's coming from. They'll think it's a herring goal. <laughs> Let's um Let's uh, keep going. Let's follow. Let's follow the turning up of the volume. All right. Let's, what do you want I me to do? My next, the, my next reading of... then, which is this is where I think that gets ridiculous. Um, yeah, because I think the I think your observation or questions about acid should come after yeah. this. Um, but um, I think this is another moment where perhaps you and I, having spent some time in boats, makes this. And I think most people would read this section as as implausible, but I think particularly for anybody who spent time in a sea over six feet, this particular section of the book, you're like, well, you know, I was actually going to read the part a little bit before that, too. But I I know what Mm -hmm. you're talking about. And it's only like two paragraphs before, because to me, the moment it really gets weird is the voicemail. Um, Yeah. Let's let's go there. um, So that's where I was going to start. So basically, we already explained this in the recap, but this is roughly 24 hours of the scene I just described where uh, ST gets away by, you know, eluding and blowing up the two guys who tried to kill him. Um, There's been some sewer crawling and then uh, he and Bart are exhausted. They head back to their home. They're checking their messages. There are a couple different messages. We get a message from Debbie uh, and she's describing... Uh, her the car, the Omni being stolen. So she says, I heard something outside, looked out the window, and there was a big guy out there in a suit, which, by the way, is an important plot point that you really don't notice in this moment because it's obscured by what happens next. It's one of those moments where Stevenson's asking the reader to remember too much, I think. There was a big guy out there in a suit, and there was a big black car waiting next to him, and this guy just got in the car with keys and started it up and drove away. They already had keys made. Beep! Your house is a huge fucking bomb in the basement. Get out now. Beep. Hey, this is Dolmacher. But I missed the rest because Bart was throwing a chair through the window. About 10 seconds later, my train set got scattered all over Brighton and points downward. We were lying down in Boston's largest backyard. 
behind a heap of Ross Commons concrete trash. A few pieces of his stupid vinyl siding fluttered down on our backs, but that was it. I got an A in chemistry, and I could tell it wasn't a gas explosion. It was high explosives, planted there the night before, which meant it had been done with Ross Commons' help. But why would he help? Because they were big. Big enough to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. A Basco-sized organization. And because he wanted to get rid of this house anyway. Brighton Bomb Factory explodes, killing two. FBI says Taylor was actually a terrorist. Direct action campaign, a cover for violence? Bart rolled over on his back. Intense, he said. (laughs) I yanked the revolver out of his belt, grabbed it by the barrel, and laid open his right eyebrow. I grabbed his keys and ran for the van. I thought ST was a man of peace, says shocked roommate. G. Terrorist Desperate Escape from Bombsite. Inside, Sangamon Taylor. Jekyll and Hyde personality? While I was headed cross down, it started to rain. Downtown, there was a waterfront park, and that's where I assembled the Zodiac. Out on the water, a Coast Guard cutter was towing an 80-foot pleasure palace out away from the yacht club into open water. G. Car found near yacht club. Abandoned mining attempt? I recognized the yacht. Alvin Pleshy liked to go fishing in it. It was being shadowed by a couple of fireboats, and cops were swarming around on the decks. Plushy's terror cruise, ST's bombs, and XVP's yacht. He hated Plushy from the beginning. I took it out of there nice and easy. Didn't crank up the throttle until I was out past the airport, and then ran full tilt until all I could see was waves and rain and rain. A nor'easter was bearing down from Greenland. A big, blue, nasty-looking son of a bitch. We had an exposure suit in there, so I pulled it on and then crammed myself into my Levi's so I wouldn't be so fucking orange. I pointed her north, into the storm clouds, into the waves. Nothing could find me in that. Not cigarettes... Not CG cutters, neither helicopters nor satellites. Or so I thought, until the helicopter gunship came up on my stern. (laughs) How many wild coincidences have taken place in just... That's um, book... In my my edition, that's not even two full pages. Yeah, yeah, no, that was about a page and a half. Yeah. Plot implausibilities do you count in that in that section? Well, okay, so there are wild coincidences that are convenient for the plot, like the bomb going off within, you know, 10 seconds of when they hear that message that that there are also implausibilities that we're meant to understand in sort of like ST's paranoid brain (laughs) is him putting together in a maybe a bit of a paranoid way, the conspiracy allied against him, which you know, we come to understand there is a conspiracy against him, although he's also in a moment where I think we're meant to understand that he's maybe over-imagining maybe the scope of the fantasy or, or uh, of the conspiracy or maybe not. Um, there's also moments that I just find inexplicable. Like, I don't understand why he pistol whips Bart, um, unless it's maybe to give Bart some kind of, like, alibi I believe um, that's what it is. I believe he is leaning in to the depiction because as you kind of said earlier, he suddenly has this sort of Sherlock Holmes S yeah. like, like ability to see the plot and understand everything and is able in a moment where his house has just been exploded to like see not just the current, but the future unfolding and I do kind of like the imagined newspapers. I think that's like a fun. No, I, I love that. I, like, I, know the, I mean, the writing here is good. Like the, the snappiness yeah. of the prose and the fact that in about a page and a half, he gets you from his house to like, I don't know, like, like Marblehead. Like, you know. Marblehead. 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 
Yeah, I mean, like the just the economy and the snappiness and the newspapers and all of that is really, really good. It's just like I didn't feel prepared for everything that was happening. Right. And and if 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 okay, if the pistol whipping is some kind of alibi, I don't think that's ever explained. We just well, we, he, he says he apologizes, but he's also like he. And he Bart's just like, yeah, later. don't worry about and it. Bart's like, Bart's like, yeah, you know, and, and Bart plays along masterfully while ST is gone. Mm. Um, so my reading is that it's a way to give Bart some cover. Uh, so he is not a um, an unindicted co-conspirator. Um, I mean, though, I feel like there are easier ways to have done that, which is even like, hey, buddy, they're coming after me. I got to make this look real. Close yes, your eyes. But if you are like 20 something year old Neil Stevenson and you are high on acid and you have yeah. just written <laughs> this chapter yeah. about yeah. the cigarette boat, you're going to be like, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Eat a part. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think I think that might be. Yeah, I think that might yeah, be the, what's happening. The one the one that really sticks in my craw in this section is the coincidence that Plushy's yacht is there as he is leaving the harbor. Which turns um, out to be a red herring, right? Because there's no bomb on the yacht or anything. Nor, you know, there's this whole, like, fever dream. I mean, to me, it's interesting, which is, like, is the helicopter a flash forward? Because it just doesn't seem plausible to me that even that the helicopter... So what happens after this is the that a timing. helicopter comes out of nowhere and starts shooting at him in the teeth of the gale that has just roared down from Greenland, which 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 ST is able to motor through in about a half hour, right? He comes out, you know, <laughs> like, which you've... You know... And and no. it's and and I don't know if 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 the idea is that Stevenson is ma- meaning for us to suggest that this is a blend of paranoid hallucination and reality, and that it's all being narrated from ST's like recuperating memory, you know, six weeks later in Gorham, New Hampshire, uh, or uh, you know, after motoring up what very well could have been the Saco River um, or the Pis- Piscata. How do you say that? Pis- Piscataqua River, it's yep. it's it's based on his description. It's one of those two because that that those are the only two rivers that are going to be na- navigable up to the White Mountains, and both of them have like lakes that then turn back into rivers that then turn into lakes too. Um, you know, so the, the the geography is actually somewhat accurate in terms of what he's describing here. Oh, I love the idea that he stopped at the gas station too, which is like I went to shore and stopped at the gas station. He's like, does he mean a marina? Did he beach like- the zodiac? Does he remember, <laughs> you know, like it or it's and the, so and the guy looked over. like Adley Stevenson or uh, right. A no, Spiro, no, Spiro Agnew. Agnew. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. And the, I mean, yeah. And there's a heavy dose of eight Hunter S. Thompson in this whole section, too. Right. This is like fear and loathing in the Boston Harbor. <laughs> yeah. But without the narrative control of, right, of Hunter right. S. Thompson, like without right. the, you know, with I mean, there's just like the. Like, yeah, Stevenson doesn't have the control yet. He's got he's got the chops for sure. He's got great sentences. But yeah. um, but he's just it's it's like, it, yeah, he's like a 17 year old kid that can't help himself. You know, it's, yeah. it's one of those things. I think it's very generous of you to say that this might be like a like a remembered fever dream. There's no clue for that. Except right. unless we're supposed to start thinking that the LSD kind of conjures it in reverse that's the um, only that's the only clue. Um, you and, know, the only the only clue is that he takes acid later. And yeah. it and and like if it and 
that's the only clue. But I, yeah, I agree that the, it, I don't think that if that's what we're supposed to think, we're being very kind because he's yeah, not doing his job. If you're gonna if you're gonna do something like that as a writer, I, I, I would I think. Um, so you've just had this this very fun gripping action sequence in the harbor where he's running away from the the, the cigarette boat. A lot of the sentences here are very similar to those. It's the same yeah. kind of feeling. If you really did want to make this a fever dream, you would have to change something in your prose for yeah. that to actually land with the reader, that it's yeah. going to be a different thing. And it's just too simple. It's too similar. Uh, flipping flipping off the helicopter pilots. Um, you know, there's one moment when he's like, I could, I was eye to eye with them. And I was like, if they wanted to kill you, they would just hold the trigger down at that moment and not worry about it. And it would it would be like in Snow Crash where they're using reason on things and stuff just disappears, which yeah. is really... I mean, like there's, yeah, I mean, the idea of piloting a Zodiac successfully up and down 30 foot seas is a lot to swallow. Yeah, well, it, it does. It depends actually on how steep the seas are. If they're big ocean rollers that are like swells, sure. If they're starting to tumble over, if they're starting to break, uh, he's likely going to to swamp. But it, it's right. also... Yeah, I mean, I do probably believe that it would be very hard for a helicopter to shoot a, a, a raft in that kind of condition. I yeah. think that's probably true. I guess the one thing, it, if I'm going to be kind to Stevenson again, though, the one difference, in at least in the section I read, though, is that basically he takes every single... After he knocks out um, uh, uh, Bart, there's this period where every sentence stands in for about 10 minutes, you know? While I was headed across town, it started to rain. Downtown, there was a waterfront park, and that's where I assembled the Zodiac. Zodiac takes about 20 minutes to assemble. I watched a video today. Our, out on the water, a Coast Guard cutter was towing an 80-foot pleasure palace. You know, that, whereas that's happening, he's, he's doing a sentence every 10 minutes. The section you were talking about, the action sequence, like every second is three yeah. or four lines. So it is, there is something kind of flashbacky about that way you just have images in and mm. memory too but you're right but by the time we get to the helicopter pilot it is slowed down into yep. that sort of action sequence so yeah i mean i agree with you um and also i just, I just don't i don't know even you know um i don't know you know even even the the history of our government's reactions to terrorism um yeah. i uh i don't think that they would scramble <laughs> a, no. a yeah. cobra attack helicopter to like you know like we're even just a like we're pretty close to habited waters. Also, yeah, and 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 also, how did they find him? Unless yeah. they were just like, oh, as soon as he, you know, as soon as he makes a run for it, he's going for the Zodiac. He's gonna. We know yeah. his. But also, like, could he not have just driven the van like out onto like I ninety five and up to Maine? Yeah. You know, like it's Bart's van, right? Like, I mean, you know, pres- I, I I don't. It, it yeah where did the helicopter come from is it supposed to be there wasn't even homeland security so it's supposed to be like special forces or yeah. do the fbi have have cobra attack helicopters I, I i yeah it's and there's a level of paranoia here and sort of attribution of sort of like um a sinisterness and b competence of the surveillance state that is nowadays largely sort of 
the the provenance of uh, the radical right. But I think in these days, there is a sort of like anarcho-libertarian radical environmentalist, and it feels exactly like the sort of scenario people like that would imagine, right? Like, oh yeah, of course, they're tracking our calls and they've got the helicopters ready to go. They're going to they're gonna plant a, ba- a bomb and, you know, like, I'm going to go ahead and take the Zodiac to the harbor because that's the least thing they're expecting. But who knows, they might get me with a helicopter. You know, like that, that's like the kind of thing you can imagine somebody like that thinking, but it wouldn't actually happen that way. If they really wanted yeah. to catch him, there just would be a bunch of feds in his parking lot. Right, exactly. They're not going to, and it's just, it, it happens, it happens too quickly. Yeah. You know, like, it's just like, like who makes the call? Why don't they check out Biotronics and Pleshy's like claims if Pleshy's even involved, which like yeah. you, you never really get the sense that he is. Um and you're just like, does Laughlin really have this much clout? Like, I don't think yeah. so. And there's nothing else in the book that indicates he has that much clout, you know? Like, generally, yes. when ST encounters cops, he's usually able to able to manage them. If, if Laughlin was that clouded up, um, there would be more problems with the constabulary. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... And, the, and then, you know, this, this book probably fully realized would be much longer and it would be much worse as well. Um, yeah. to, if, if, if Stevenson really indulged these, this, like these impulses, because then like now we have this weird paranoid anarcho, like run away from the police state, which morphs into like 40 Native days and 40 American nights in the desert rejuvenation, like hero's journey. Like you said, like coming it's back. Like, up it's, out it's of, like, it's uh, like a Tonto finding the lone ranger and nursing him back to health. God. Yes. <laughs> you know? I know it was, it's just awful. And then, and then there's, you know, and then there's this whole other climax about like the survivalist game and Pleshy getting shot with the paintball. And then another climax with the booby trapped barge and another climax with the Basco right. Explorer like you really get the sense of Stevenson as a young writer being like, shit, shit, shit. <laughs> and well, which one of those would you choose? Um, if you, as a book ending, because any of them could have worked. Um, the, the, I would have tried to get to the, the ending of the book that we have a lot without the interstitial stuff. I, I could really skip the Dolmacher assassination like we could get rid of all of that. We still Kelvin in this book is the combination of the librarian and Juanita. Yeah. Um, sort of the smart sciencey person who comes up with the deus ex machina to save everything. Yeah. Um, but I would get rid of the survivalist assassination attempt. Cause I don't, I like Pleshy is kind of the big, bad evil guy, but only in so much as, as he stands in for a particular kind of hatred of government. And ends up being a completely red herring anyway, because Dolmacher doesn't help them. The only thing Dolmacher really does to advance the plot is he brings attention to the toxins in the harbor. And and he does he makes Sangamon Taylor's complaints seem more plausible. Um, and I like but- I like that section where we get the description of Dolmacher realizing that he has been um that he has been betrayed. 
yeah, by yeah. Biotronic. The, the 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 bleach in the toilet and the and the yeah. dead body and, and the, all the of that. The dead guy yeah. in the sink. Yeah, oh, and, that's and, great. And, the, and that's good. And it gives mm-hmm. it it makes a bland character much more interesting. And then he just gets rid of him. Yeah, He's, and you're <laughs> he, like, you, ugh, it's this book is so overplotted in some areas, and so underplotted in others. There are a number of characters who are interesting characters who are introduced, show the promise of doing something fascinating and interesting, don't realize that promise, and then their plot is sewn up in a very clumsy way. Um, I think Dolmacher's a great example of that. Also, Cohen, does he ever show up again? Does he? Do we see, do we see Cohen? The, oh my God, the, you're right. He never returns. Doesn't aren't, aren't we sort of being set up for Cohen at some point, like for St. Calling Cohen and be like, "Hey, I've got something for you," you know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, like you, you sort of feel like um, you, you like the place that Cohen would come in in the movie is like at the very end, like when John McClane is kind of like mopping stuff up, and like the last remaining like helpful cops, not the really annoying cops. Yeah. are like we'll take it from here you know yeah. that kind of thing and and you're yeah. right cohen like that is a promise that is absolutely never picked up again yeah and i mean also think i forget what's the navy diver's name who with the cancer uh tom Akers. yeah tom Akers also just sort of like his resolution I found very unsatisfying, a bit implausible. First of all, it's like what we're meant to understand in that section. So this is when they're under the freighter and there's this, it's almost like sort of Keystone Cops. Oh, there's three divers. There's this sort of like, <laughs> like how many divers are there? It's almost like a Benny Hill sort of like scene where there's one more diver than you expect. Although that's all written really well in terms of the like what he can see and how deep everything yep. is and and sort of the three-dimensional di- action of that. But there's this moment essentially where I think the uh, Basco security shows up and is maybe going to discover the mine. And then Tom Akers just like fucking kills him with a knife um, all of a sudden, which is also quite de-escalation. Although I guess we, we understand that Tom Akers is really pissed off about his cancer. So he wants to blow this up. But but um, that seems strange. And then, of course, ST is like Tom Akers has no idea who I am. He's he's a trained diver with a knife. I'm dead. Um and but basically all that really seems to happen is that like somehow ST gets the light shown on his face. Tom Akers realizes who he is and seems to like using ESP figure out <laughs> that oh he's really on ST's side, that the bomb is actually the, the bomb that he was there to plant is actually a good thing, <laughs> and that he's now in his like dying seconds of life because he's been poisoned by the PCBs going to help ST disarm the two bombs. That's the thing right. he does is he holds up the finger too and there's actually two bombs. And all that's very confusing and it doesn't seem to make any sense. It all seems a little bit implausible and disappointing even though there's moments again that are absolutely brilliant just in sort of the just the the visuals of the whole thing yeah are, are well yeah i mean up. you know i'm not sure if this is your question about acid but mm-hmm. this book does feel like at times those periods of a psychedelic experience that move yeah. in and out of like sharp sharp focus 
that are interesting or, you know, or whatever. Um, but there are these great set pieces in this book of action and wit and verve. And then these like strange periods where you're like, I don't really know what's happening right now. <laughs> like, like yeah. I'm on this trip and I don't really understand it and it doesn't really make sense and it's not very explained. Um, and that that is really what my experience of this book is that it is like it, it is a lot like a psychedelic trip where you understand some of it and it's it's heavy with meaning. And then there's a lot of it that is really inchoate. And I think, you know. It, it, it it's probably dutiful, which is your term, enough that if you work really hard, you can find the threads. And you're like, oh, what Tom Akers was doing, diving under there and why he did what he did, that was buried in that paragraph 100 pages ago. And if I read it really carefully, you know, but we're not geniuses, you know, we you don't remember every single detail. My question about acid, I, we sort of got in early. It was really more of a setup, which is that ST took the acid, you know, roughly 40 or 50 miles into his cruise away from the helicopter. But when did Stevenson take the acid while writing that section? And right. was, was it not a bit before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's see. My one of my questions I've got for you is: um, there were so many echoes of Snow Crash in this book, so many moments yeah. that I really yeah. I was like, "Oh, he's going to write that again, and he's going to write it better." Uh -huh. um, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of mine to give your brain a chance to start coming up sure. with a few of yours. Uh, Laughlin is the steroided teenager in the bimbo oh, sure. box yeah, that yeah. tries to uh, because there's so many descriptions of Laughlin sort of being like really kind of over muscled and like wants to use the muscles and is kind of pumping with like physical power. Also Jason, the incompetent mafioso. Exactly right. Yeah. With the huge deltoids. <laughs> yeah, the iron pumper. <laughs> the iron pumper. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so that's, that's one of them. And then the, um, uh, the Zodiac getting, getting cut clean in two by the samurai sword of the hull of the cigarette boat. I was like, mm. ah, I mean, it was like he yeah. is he, he is going to come back to that idea of things getting severed cleanly by swords um, in his very next book. Uh, and I'd, there there are a few other ones, but I was wondering if there are any ones that uh, stuck out to you. I mean, I, there are lots and there's lots. And, and you know, I mean, we've been talked about sort of the resonances between ST's relationship to Debbie and Hero's relationship to Juanita. They both just sort of realize that they need to be more assertive about sharing their feelings, which I guess is a, that's a big boy thing for a 28 year old to figure out. So, you know, may, maybe that <laughs> maybe that counts as change. Um, one that occurs to me um, along those lines, um, just the ways in which some of the kind of like frogman commando exploits return in the scene where Hero and the mafioso, um, the, the, where they show up with the pirates' uh, yacht and they're attacked by all the frogmen and some of just some of the like three dimensional space and sneaking onto the boats and just some of the action scenes. Obviously, Hero and the Zodiac in the raft is, you know, it's sort of like he's channeling yep. his ST. You know, uh, Hero has his yep. own, like, piloting the Zodiac through the infrastructure, you know, and, and I mean, so that. And then I think a big one, which I think he does much better in Snow Crash, is a moment of, like, a sudden change in the context, in the context of the novel 
from like hyper urban to hyper rural. So in the escape through the harbor, dodging the helicopter through the nor'easter, like up the Ogunquit River, buying some gas, ditching, ditching the conveyance, and then like entering a whole new context. I mean, that's very similar to Hero buying the motorcycle and driving up Route 5 until he gets to Oregon and then having a few adventures up there. And then, in fact, ditching the motorcycle and then getting, you know, onto the sort of the next, like, you know, um, the the next theater of plot, which is the raft. You know, um, that's done super well in Snow Crash. It's also, as I think you said, absolutely unnecessary in this book. <laughs> you don't yeah. really need him to leave Boston. He could have just stayed in Boston the entire time. It's not really necessary. It actually is necessary in Snow Crash because where the climax is happening for Hero is the raft. Where the climax is happening for ST is Boston and Stevenson in some like, you know, way that makes sense to me as like somebody who would like to write a novel and never has is like, I need to I need to sort of like reset my hero in some way. You have an act two climax, right? Which is the house blowing up. And mm-hmm. then the sort of chase scene at the end of it. And then I now I need a reset. I need some downtime. And then we're going to resume. He's doing that, but he does it in a way that doesn't make any sense plotting-wise. You don't need to go to... Uh, I mean, it, hanging around with Boone and Jim Grandfather is fun. I like Jim Grandfather as a character. Like, I'm happy to, like, watch him shoot fish arrows at people. I almost feel like <laughs> he should have just saved another book for Jim Grandfather. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that that's... They're, 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 this, he really needed... He really needed, you know, so, somebody to be like, okay, okay, Neil, um, nice, nice yeah. job. Good, good this start. Is, this isn't, first this of is all, either, this isn't really good shit. Right, yeah. You're really <laughs> like, on to something here. Like, good, like, hell yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. we're going to publish draft. your book. <laughs> yeah. We got and, something and maybe, and maybe this is two books or, yeah. or one much, much longer book. Or what our preference would be, Mr. Stevenson, is that this book is maybe a little thinner. Um, yeah. We really think you could cut about... 80 pages from this and it's going to be tighter and faster and a little and a, a, a little more um cohesive because i i do think you're totally right there's so many red herrings um there is a lot in this book plotting wise that that is necessary but then he also indulges some things where you're just like no no we didn't we didn't need that there was another way to make that happen and so there's also another version of that too, actually. I totally agree with that. And I'm imagining Stevenson having that meeting and then like being kind of really pissed off because he thought the book was perfect and then going out for pizza and skee ball and beer and then doing some nitrous and blotter acid and then like taking a cruise around the harbor and then like passing out and waking up like on that beach where all the turds wake up and uh, wash up in Southie with a hangover and then being like, yeah, I guess they're right. And then going home (laughs) (laughs) after getting all of his like 28 year old misbehavior out of the way. And, um, you know, there's also another version of it in which you could keep Jim Grandfather. I don't think you would need Boone where actually the whole Dolmacher plushy assassination gambit becomes the last third of the book. It expands and Laughlin comes after Dolmacher too with some of his goons and they're all kind of like stomping around the woods in New Hampshire like shooting each other with arrows. And then you can use the survival game 
yeah. as your because like it's set up, it's there. They stumble a, into the survival game, yeah, and and something with that happens somehow too. Like maybe a bunch of uh, like uh, uh, Laughlin's goons pretend they're playing the survival game, but they have real guns and they're actually trying to track down Dolmacher. And I mean, that could be good. And Jim Cranfather would work perfectly well in that context, yeah. right? He would be yeah. the ace in the sleeve, and um, you know, and and you would not even have to go back to Boston. And that becomes basically becomes capture the flag and Dolmacher's the flag, and yeah. and Dolmacher has the key. He both can testify and explain what Basco has done. And he can also give the chemical formula that's going to save Boston Harbor. And by the way, the world, because this formula is like ice nine and will end all life on the planet. Maybe yeah. <laughs> according to Kelvin. <laughs> well, I did, I did like that moment when Kel, like there was this great moment of like good scientific skepticism yeah. where it's like, yeah, yeah. The broad strokes of this are really bad, but don't forget like, nothing actually goes the way that we predict it's going to do in right. the real world. So, I mean, actually it could be quite worse or, you know, maybe it would never get that bad. Um, yeah. I did. I yeah. really did like that. But like, I like Kelvin. I, he, my next question about seams is like, he is a very obvious seam to me mm. um, because he's another plant in terms of providing information and solace and plot direction rather yeah. than like a real character. Um, and he's a bit too I, easy, right? It's like there's all this like capture the Dolmacher up in New Hampshire that happens that proves completely unnecessary. And then they just like knock on Kelvin's door and he pours them some Cranraz and they get down to business. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, and it's just, um, yeah, that that's one of the things that I, I, I did start noticing as I was reading this again for, you know, for this, as I was kind of rereading the second half of the book, there's just so many moments where you're like okay this this is here only to nudge the plot forward like yeah. this little section is here simply to push us into the next thing a life of its own and it doesn't serve what was set up for this character or for this to me the one of the examples of this i noticed is a very small little detail that bothered me from that section i read which is who calls uh, them and warns them that there's a bomb in the basement. And I was like, well, the obvious person to do that would be Dolmacher, because we know that Dolmacher's not evil. He, he's kind of dumb. He's smart, but he's kind of dumb. And that maybe he would do it. But then the next message is Dolmacher. So we're like, well, that wasn't Dolmacher. Um, so who could have done it? Well, maybe it was Ross Common, who was like, I'm blowing this thing up, but I don't want to actually kill anybody. So I'm going to tell them that there's a big bomb, get out. And so then we learn towards the very end in a strange scene that it's Gomez, the security guy. And it's just one of the most throwaway and plausible scenes of the entire book because ST comes up to Gomez and he sort of pieced it together. Maybe he recognized his voice. And he's like, thanks for the warning. And Gomez is like, ah, ST is like, they must have been paying you some pretty good money. And he's like, nah, it's not the money. I just was pissed at you for getting me fired. But I didn't want you to die. <laughs> yeah, you cost and me then, a job, man. And then ST's like, yeah, uh, I got to talk about some stuff with these other people, and I don't want you to hear it, you know, because you're a rat. And he's like, all right, I'll get out of here. See you later. And you're like, okay, so wait, 
<laughs> so ST is basically like, you sold me out and blew up my house, and I know it, but thanks for the warning. And the other guy's like, yeah, I did that because I was pissed at you for costing me a job. Even you go though you got me another better job that I've actually really been enjoying by all accounts. But I guess we're just going to kind of forgive each other. But I understand that you don't want to be my friend because I kind of blew up your house a little bit. Or, or yeah. it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. It just doesn't this, feel like how humans behave at all. Yeah. The, this this book becomes like, you know, like like my, my, my reason for alluding to Die Hard earlier was intentional because like this really, the end of this book feels like some of the later diehards where mm. you're just like, oh, my God. Like, this is just, this is, like, somebody needs to get a hold of this. Um, I, I, I honestly, I've watched the first one, which is a good. perfect movie. Stop and there. Yeah. I watched a little <laughs> bit of the second one. I'm like, I can tell this is just not going to be as, it, to me, it's just like, oh, they're just basically taking a movie and stylistically making it similar. And then they're going to give you moments that remind you of the first movie because Bruce Willis is going to say similar things or kill people in similar ways. And yeah, it is have, the the worst. Though, yeah. It is like the symptom that is plaguing, you know, like American culture. fan service. It was fan service <laughs> like, yeah, before there was fan service. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. It's very frustrating. But yeah, yeah. But um, so uh, readers, uh, listeners, we head on into our uh, trivia segment here. Um, so, Jesse. Yes. Sangamon is a very weird name. Yes. Um, and so my question to you is, do you have any guesses or um, ideas about the provenance of the name Sangamon? Well, one thing I was going to point out is that there should be a Sangamon and Taylor intersection in Chicago, not far from my house. Um, except for that doesn't exist anymore because it was kind of bulldozed to make way for Little Italy in Chicago. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I guess Sangamon is an earlier term. I always thought Sangamon was an early term that was used as a synonym for chief for as the Europeans encountered native tribes in the Northeast. But I may be confusing Sagamon and Sangamon. Sangamon. So I I think maybe that's Sagamon instead of Sangamon. Um, my best guess is it's just kind of an old waspy name that they named streets after and in certain places, and that we're meant to understand that Sangamon might be kind of from an old Boston Brahmin-type family, even though he's kind of a black sheep type. Um, so you're... you're- you were you were the closest you were when you were at the Chicago street intersections, mm. um, uh, and th- there is a real mid. There's a there is a real. Um, well, I, insofar as anything is real, um, Sangamon is a county um, mm. in uh, in, Il- in Illinois. Oh. Uh, no, in, in here in, here in the United States um, mm. in uh, in Illinois. Mm. Um, but more interestingly, it is a geological era. Uh, oh. between the Illinoisan and the Wisconsin geological eras, which I did not know had been named. Oh. Uh, it's a, it's a Pleistocene era. Yeah. Um, and, and Sangamon has sort of hung around as a county name. And then mm-hmm. as you've experienced as a street name, which very often happens with place names sure. and county names sure. and whatnot. Sure. Um, I don't know 
Uh, but yeah, Sangamon is the third interglacial stage of the Pleistocene epoch in North America after the Illinoisan glacial stage and before the Wisconsin. Well, um, and both Illinois and Wisconsin, I believe, are names that are Anglo. Or well, I should say, Francification of indigenous names. Um, I don't know if that's true for Sangamon or if that is in fact an old wasp name, but it would sort of fit with my idea that Sangamon or Sagamon was a uh, like an Abenaki or um, Algonquian language group word meaning something or another. And yeah. the, the people who were indigenous to Wisconsin and Illinois, um, which would include the uh, Ojibwe and the Potawatomi are part of the same language group as the people who are indigenous to New England, that, you know, Algonquian group, I mean, people who originally lived in Ottawa and then kind of spread out throughout the Midwest and the Northeast and the Southeast into Virginia and places like that too. We need a, uh, we need a ding and a, and a, uh, I think as sound effects, I would give you a ding for that one because you really oh. did. Uh, I, cause you know, I like, I think, I think there's no way that you name a character that weirdly without, having gone and done your, your homework. Um, and it's the kind of thing that I, I really think, you know, this is a, this is yeah. a thriller. Um, I would give Stevenson the credit of being like, what is a real deep cut of uh, that? I can name, I can throw this weird name that, like you said, has some grounding in kind of like indigenous people, because we do have a crossover with, uh, with Jim yeah. grandfather. Um, but yeah, I would I would give that one to you. I, that, that that was that, a real. That reach. might have been a bit of a pity ding or a gumption ding or or maybe gumption. that my my gumption maybe. <laughs> I mean, I I suspect there might be something else to it that we haven't put our finger on yet. Too probably, um, but I I think that I, I could see that yeah in a in a book called Zodiac that is like very tied to the natural world that I was like okay yeah I could see a geologic age being uh being something that Neil Stevenson is is trying to say to us. I doubt it was a mistake or just a or just a picked out of the hat. Yeah, it's so possible though that Sangamon Taylor is named after whatever Sangamon that that geologic age was named after too. In the same mm -hmm. way that the Illinois and Wisconsin uh, eras were, the, the states Illinois and Wisconsin were not named after the geologic age. It was, it was <laughs> so, right, exactly. Uh, it's a um, who's doing who's doing the wagging here. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Your, well, I also have a name. I have a name-based quiz for you, and mine is okay. multiple choice. Um, so the bad guy chemical company in Buffalo, Niagara, in the book is called Boner, and you know I know that Stevenson enjoys puns and word plays, and he's doing a lot of winking references to real events. Um, I did a little bit of research, and I think I figured out which actual chemical company he is alluding to. And this is a chemical company that did infamously uh, dump some chemicals near Buffalo, Niagara in the 1970s and maybe the 1980s, too. And that was it did make the news then. And uh, the company also has a name that is likely to make a 14-year-old chortle. So is the name of that company A, the Hooker Chemical Company, B, Hancock & Sons Chemicals, or C, Johnson Steel Erectors, Inc.? <laughs> okay, first of all, I want to give you great kudos if you generated the two false ones in here. And, and I, I hope you did. 
um, because they're great, <laughs> especially the Johnson Steel Erectors. Um, let's see. So we got we got Hooker, Hancock, and Johnson Steel Erectors. Hancock and Sons. Hancock and Sons. <laughs> I was really hoping that um, the the um, the culprit in question was going to be Kodak, uh, who is also sort of in that upstate Buffalo area, um, and I'm sure is responsible for some chemical damage in that part of the world. Um, I just because I can't, I just can't shy away from it. I'm going to go with Johnson Steel Erectors. I can't give you a ding. I have to give you a buzz oh. for that. But. but- You'll be happy to know that, A, I did generate the two fake yes, names on brilliant. my own. <laughs> However, even though I generated the fake name Johnson Steel Erectors, there is, in fact, a Johnson Steel Erectors <laughs> in Alabama, which I think is the best. Um, I will also, so the correct answer is the Hooker Chemical Company, uh, which transmutes nicely into Boner. Um, I will also say that the, all three of those names, after I wrote them, I discovered that they also have something in common. And as a bonus quiz, I think we should put it to the listener. So, ah. listener, if you think you know what Hooker Chemical Company, Hancock & Sons Chemicals, and Johnson Steel Erectors, if you think you know what those three names have in common, apart from making a 14-year-old chortle, uh, go ahead and email me at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com. We'll read your name on the podcast. And if we ever have swag, you'll be first in line for some free swag. Um, JPD, will you ever read Neil Stevenson's eco-thriller Zodiac again before you die? I doubt it. What yeah, about you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very happy for the chance to have read it again. Yeah. Um, and to just kind of like, buff up my knowledge of early Stevenson. Um, but I just, there's too many other flawed books to read before I would read this particular flawed book again. I agree. I agree with that. Um, you know, you asked me the definition of upper middle brow last time, and we had some discussion about it. And one of the things I was thinking about in terms of my own definition, I've said accessible and high craft, but I think that for me, for something to be upper middle brow, it has to pull me along. I have to look forward to reading it. And I have to I have to really admire the craft of the writing and the plotting and the characters and stuff like that. This one does pull me along. You know, I wasn't bored while I was reading it. But it's sort of like every many, many moments are just purely pleasurable on their own. It just doesn't hang together super well. Uh, even though I think yeah. probably there was a lot of prodigious effort on Stevenson's part to make the plot hang together, that just all the various, you know, fasteners he uses, they're just they're just not very elegant fasteners. There are certainly moments yeah. of high craft, and there are moments that are worthy of Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon and Anathem. You know, the talent is there, and it just it just does not achieve high craft, I think, throughout. I agree. So um, now that we're leaving the shores of Zodiac behind, uh, tell us what they, our listeners can expect next. Well, as part of our, you know, improvised theme on early Stevenson, we're going to now skip, we're going to leapfrog, snow crash, and go to the Diamond Age. What did it come out in, what, 94, 95, something like that? I think it's 94, 95. It's about, he, he's, he's on a pretty regular run of a book every 
two and a half years from here on yeah. out, which is yeah. amazing. If anything, he actually kind of <clears throat> speeds up as the books get longer. <laughs> it's it's insane. <laughs> it's really quite it's really quite remarkable. There are more prolific writers. I don't know if there is a more prolific writer who writes better books. I think you're right. I think he does. Yeah, that that's one thing we'll, we'll definitely say about him is is the the word count and the average word quality is probably higher than than anybody else that I can think of. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really love it and we appreciate it. Um, please give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you listen on. That really helps other people find the show. Um, if you don't want to give us a five-star rating, please email us at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com or bag B-A-G-G at uppermiddlebrow.com and give us a review. If you leave us a five-star rating and review, we promise we will read it on the air uh, for about the first 100 or so if uh, if we ever get up to that level of listening. Uh, JPD, anything else you want to say before we sign out? No, but if you want to hang on, I'll tell you what those three names have in common. Listeners, don't you want access to the secret vault? You'll just have to you'll just have to guess yourself or keep listening till some smart reader puts it together and sends us an email. Uh, thank you, Chris Bag. Thank you, listener. Farewell. Good night. Zodiac 2, outro script, take one. Hey listeners, Chris here. I'm at the top of a climb out in the Mount Hood National Forest called Screamer. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes, creators and hosts. Music from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by <clears throat> Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And if you think you know the answer to Jesse's question about what the fake business names in his trivia question have in common, write hello at uppermiddlebrow.com. Thanks for listening.